Father, we are just ever encouraged. Lord, so encouraged just to be in your word, just to be together as the body of Christ, Lord. And just enjoy the sweetness of your fingerprints on these pages, Lord. And your heart and your gentleness, Lord, and your love. And, and Lord, even as we read of Solomon, just these 20 years, Lord, that these first 20 years are just, Lord, they're so beautiful. The wisdom that you gave him, the knowledge, and Lord, the constant reminder that it's good to have head knowledge, but without application of the heart, it doesn't mean a whole lot. So God, I pray this evening for all of us here, whatever's going on in our work week, whatever's going on in our lives, as we come into your house, as we just humble ourselves before you, as we be still and know that you're God. God, I pray and I believe I pray in unity here that your spirit would not only enlighten these words to jump off the pages into our heart as living examples, but but also there would be this desire to live after these commandments, statutes, and judgments. There'd be a desire to press in and learn more about the sweetness of you, my Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray and I ask, uh, Lord, with all liberty, have your way with us tonight. Have your way with us tonight. We pray this in full assurance, Lord. In your holy and mighty name, Jesus Christ, and all God's children pray. Amen. 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 It is good to be a child of God. Chapter 5, verse 1. So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and all the furnishings, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of God. You start to think about that, just, you know, the silver and the gold and all these things that um, are just accumulating the way God had added. Unlike, there's, there's never been a time in history, and from this point, nor I believe will there be again, that God did such a moving that literally the nation of Israel becomes the center point for all the other surrounding nations Solomon to come to visit to hear about the wisdom to see what God's doing to recognize the one true God and so this is all put in the treasuries in the house of God and and it says now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the chief of the children of Israel in Jerusalem that they might bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord up to the city of David which is in Zion Again, the correct way to bear and bring the ark with the priests, they're going to do these things correctly. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with the king at the feast, which was in the seventh month. So that would be probably most likely, we believe it's the Feast of Tabernacles, if you want to write that in your scriptures there next to your notes. Um, That would be our September-October time frame, okay? Okay. And I think it's beautiful because he had finished this early, but he waited. 
he waited upon the Lord for the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, as you know, the, the feast, you know, obviously you have Passover, and then 50 days later you have Pentecost, and then you have the Feast of, of Tabernacles. The idea here is, is faithful, enduring, right? Um, just beautiful, beautiful, commensurating and remembering the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And finally, this temple now that God's presence is going to dwell in, and he times it so that way this dedication of the temple is right at the time that they would be directly remembering what it was like when they were always on the move, never having this place, this, this temple where they could come and worship. You know, just just what a beautiful celebration, what a beautiful feast. God, God's timing is perfect in everything. Solomon's in certainly um, following and obeying the Lord here. So it happens in the seventh month, so that all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark, and they brought up the ark, the tabernacle meaning, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for the multitude. Just let your mind run with that. Then the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary. He doesn't make the same mistake that his father David did. He brings it into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. So again, we understand that idea that uh, God is letting us know the poles, the carrying. Why this is significant is because God chose it this way. God chose that it would be men and women, of course, but men as the priests at that time that would take those poles and they would lift that ark and they would carry God where they would go that way. And God chose to use you and I that way, that he indwells us through the Holy Spirit. He lives in us now, right? We have become uh, the temple of God, our scriptures tell us in our New, in our New Testament scriptures. And we take God everywhere we go. And isn't that just astonishing that God, that's the way God has chosen to do it, that he chose to use us as vessels to bring himself to people. And that's how he wants to do that, that we are, we are the living temple that way. And then as we go, we're being, you know, we're carrying God with us. We're bringing God to other people. And that's, that's sort of how he's chosen to do that. And, and we're reminded of that because the poles are there that God's carried, and we carry him. And the poles extended so the ends of the poles of the ark could be seen from the holy place. Again, the presence of where God um, would, be, would be dwelling there in front of the inner sanctuary. But they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. Again, at the time of this writing, Ezra writing this, he would have... Um, Included that. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they had come out of Egypt. Now, I'm pretty sure somebody's thinking, well, wait a minute, what happened to the manna, right? What happened to Aaron's rod? We don't know. There is no biblical evidence that tells us one way or another what has happened. We just simply know at this point we have the Decalogue or the two tablets of stone, right, that are being placed 
in there, but but we don't know what happened. And, and I think it's okay when we get to passages like this to say, I don't know. Isn't that freeing? To not, you know, feel like we have to give an answer for things we don't understand or don't know and feel like we're on point to do that. It's okay to do that when people ask us things about Scripture we may not know. I don't, I don't know. We don't know. I, when we get to heaven, we can, if, if it comes top of mind for you, you can look at Jesus. What did we do with the manna? Where is the manna? I know it's around here somewhere. Um, or Aaron's rod that's supposed to be budding. Is it still budding? I mean, you know, commentators, you know, they get, you know, a little creative with the pen. You know, many of them have wondered, you know, is it possible during the time of Philistine when they had the ark, did they potentially open the ark, look in it? And I just find it interesting that they would open the ark and look in it and only take the manna and the rod and not take the tablets. But maybe they're like, you know, no, we don't know. We just don't know. So nothing was in the ark except the tablets which Moses put at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they had come out of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the most holy place for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves with keeping to their divisions. Do you remember that? The Lord had arranged it like that. There was 24 divisions. And the Levites who were the singers and all those of Asaph and Heman and Judathon and those sons and their brethren stood at the east end of the altar, clothed in white linen, having symbols of stringed instruments and harps, and with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets. I just love to let that video run. You know, you've heard me talk about the East Coast Pastors Conference before we go, and uh, this year it was in Philadelphia. Um, a lot of times it's in northeast uh, Maryland uh, in that area. And we come together, and, and there can be anywhere from 900 to 1,600 men all over the United States and different countries, and they travel in. I think this year he said there was 37 or 38 countries present, um, something like that, uh, Pastor Joe had said. And, you know, I sit there and I, and I begin to worship, and, and you just hear the accompaniment of all these men lifting their voice up to the Lord. I just wish I could sort of bring you all with me in that. It's such a beautiful, sweet sound. And I, I, I long for when we're going to be in heaven worshiping that way with the angels. Okay, all of the angels singing, all of humanity that's, you know, saved up there. We're all just singing to the Lamb, singing to Jesus. Can you, you guys with me there? Is that going to be the sweetest sweetest time ever most beautiful time i i think something's wrong with you if you if you, if you don't get the chicken skin you know if you don't get a little bit of the the goosebumps or the chicken skin i think something you know you just let it run let that video run what it's going to be like I, I i think about it here you know the 20 priests sounding with trumpets as they're getting ready to dedicate this the sound the beauty of that Singers, and, and, and here it is circled in your Bible as one. Isn't that beautiful? The body of Christ, God's intention, unity as one. Not as many different people coming in with different agendas and different background and looking different and all those other things that are all distractions. But just, just, the, just with the same aim to lift their voices to use the giftings God has given them to bring glory and honor to his holy name Amen. and to do that in unity. I love that. 
I'm so grateful to God that he, we were upstairs praying before service and sharing with the worship team in prayer. And what a privilege it is that we get to pray. And what a privilege it is that we, that God provided a way for the enormity of our hearts, because Jesus is enlarging every one of our hearts, isn't he? He's enlarging our hearts. We're falling more and more in love with him, the depth of that. And, and can you imagine the swell of that in your heart, the, the bursting, like there's nothing and no room left because it just consumes you completely. You know what I mean? It consumes you. If you don't know what I mean, oh, please spend time with Jesus. You'll come away different. You'll, you'll come away with this swelling, this beauty and, and, you got. You just want to give it right back to the Lord because it's all his love he's given unto you. It's a grace that we can't even comprehend and it's just poured into us. And Lord, please, this is, this is yours. Be lifted right up to the throne room of heaven. It's just the beauty of that. And, and I'm so grateful he provided a way that, you know, I don't have to go run five miles around the block to deal with all of that excess joy and love and energy where, you know, uh, you guys see me. I can be bouncing off the walls. I don't have to. I, I just can. Oh, Lord. Receive prayers and alms and worship. To make one sound to be heard in praising. A single sound, a unity of voice. And thinking or thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music. And praised the Lord saying. Predominantly the priest doing this. The leadership if I can say it that way at this point. For he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Can we all say that here tonight? Why don't we do that? And three, let's do that. I, don't, I just spur the moment. Let's do that. Let's declare that as a body of Christ. One, two, three. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. There's something beautiful when we can all come into communion and agree upon that. That the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud. Why is this so significant? Because they didn't know what they're doing, just like we don't know what we're doing. How did they know that any of this was pleasing to God? How would they know? They're all stepping in faith. They're bringing the ark. Nathan the prophet said, not you, David. This will be your son, Solomon, that'll do this. David made all of the preparations as far as he could take it, but Solomon had to do it because of the blood on David's hands. Solomon says, okay, dad, I understand what you've, you've shared with me. I understand what the Lord put on your heart. I'm going to obey. I'm going to do this. Seven years it took him to build the temple with so many laborers and artisans and those men that were gifted by the Holy Spirit. And they finally complete and finish this temple. They then bring the ark, again, symbolic of the presence of the Lord God, the atonement and mercy seat, declared right in the Holy of Holies as they bring that in. The priests are all gathered. They're worshiping. This, this building, this temple is being dedicated to God. And, and how do we know? Lord, is this pleasing to you? God makes sure that they can't miss it. The cloud literally just consumes the place. So much so that they can't even stay in there. They, they literally have to come out and they just... It's, it's the presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord. 
That's what's showing us. This is that the house Lord was filled with a cloud. The presence of God is there so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Visible evidence of his presence, pleasure with all that they had done. You know, I I can't wait as the Lord would lead and allow as we dedicate the new building once the construction begins and you know, I, I don't know. I pray, Lord, do it again. I know he's living inside of us. I understand that. I know that when we occupy that building, that his presence will be there because he'll be in his saints. But boy, wouldn't it be neat if the whole thing just... Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell forever. He, he acknowledges, you know, he acknowledges the Lord in this place, in that place. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has fulfilled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth to my father, David. Did you, did you catch that? The first thing we see Solomon doing, good boy, he's doing it right. All glory to God. All glory to God. He recounts and quotes God's promises. Saying, since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, he's quoting God here, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. Nor did I choose any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. Yet I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple. For the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well in that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple. But your son, who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, and I have fulfilled the position of my father David and to sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have put the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with the children of Israel. I, I, almost, I almost picture Solomon sort of paraphrasing here saying, I present to you the miracle of God. I don't know how else to say it. I present to you, as he's saying this to the pit, I present to you the miracle of God. And it's due to God alone, due to the Lord alone. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. For Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high. And he'd set it in the midst of the court, and he stood on it. What what is this describing for all of us? A platform, much like what you have up here. And why did Solomon do that? Well, Solomon did that so that all the people would be able to see him, so all the people would be able to hear him. And then what's Solomon do? He kneels down. 
so that all the people can't see him. No. Um, he kneels down because of reverence, right? He's pouring out his soul here. This is, this is beautiful. This, this is an expression of beautiful reverence here, humility. He kneels down on his knees before all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands towards heaven. Now, this is, again, in the Jewish mind, and the, the idea is because uh, you, you, knowing certainly that the presence of God is there, he could have certainly done this, but in the Jewish mind, the idea is that God is in heaven. He's, he's up there, right? He, he's up there. Today, we, 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 we can do that, but many of us, when we're praying, you know, we just, we just, I don't know, we bow our heads, many of us, don't we? We bow our heads. We don't need to do that necessarily. It's just sort of become cultural for many of us. Um, again, uh, the, the Jewish people at the wall, they would kind of, have more of a motion like that. Okay. So what I'm getting at is that there's, there's many different ways to pray. I mean, you can pray, um, while you're working. I certainly don't encourage that to be your predominant time of prayer. You should have a quiet time with the Lord. But the beauty is, is we can talk to God at any time. We can, we can worship and pray to the Lord at any time. And there's not some specific way that's more holier than another way. And, and I only bring this up because, boy, people can get really caught up in these things and, and concerned. Maybe I'm not praying right, or maybe God can't hear me, or, or all those things. And that's, that's just really not biblical. He just kneels down. He lifts his hands up towards heaven, again, towards, you know, where he, you know, Adoration to God that way. Again, many of us will bow our heads. Sometimes I just pray with my eyes open. I'm talking, you know, I'm praying to the Lord. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there's no God in heaven or on earth like you who keep, please circle that, your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. What's the first thing he declares about God? One, there is no other one like you. There is no God's plural. You are God. What's the second thing? He acknowledges that God's a promise keeper. That God is faithful. He's a faithful God. And you know what he's faithful to? His word. He's faithful to his word. That's what we see right here. And and Solomon is literally the living proof of that. As he's declaring that all this would be done. And, And again... Who's originally the original audience for this? Uh, the post-exilic people. Do you know what an encouragement this is for them? You mean he's gonna? He's not done with us. He's not writing off Israel because of the foolishness and wickedness we've done. You mean God is not done with Israel? That's right. That's how we can declare today: God is still not done with Israel. That's how we know replacement theology is a lie from the pit of hell, trying to take the church to replace Israel. It's not biblical. It's not biblical. No, because God is faithful to his word. When he gives you a word and he gives you a confirmation, he commits that to you, you you can trust that. You can know that God will fulfill that. And here he is. Confirming that once again. And Solomon is saying, see? I almost feel like Solomon, as he's praying this, it's, it's a prayer from my heart. All of us here can pray this. You've seen God move? He's not done with you yet. If you're still here, God has a plan and a purpose for you, and he is not done with you yet. He goes on to say, 
your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is to this day. He's just remembering how great God is. Remembering how great God is in that moment. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way that they should walk in my law as you walked before me. And now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David. But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? As we read this here, how many thousands of years later, what can we say? Yes. Yes. Can't we say that every one of us, right? Didn't John tell us that? Hold your finger here. Please just turn your Bible to John chapter 1. And let's look at verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. Again, it's, it's wonderful for us because we look back upon these things. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's right there. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I like that. Yes. <laughs> Certainly we can all um, we can all declare that. But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built with hands I just want you to think about that for a minute, what Solomon's trying to communicate. He's built this house that's 2,700 square feet, right? And God, I mean, literally, we read the the Psalms, and it, it talks about how his feet, you know, the footstool, and God's throne from heaven, almost like his feet on the mercy seat, are sitting on the mercy seat, almost like the footstool of the Lord. How enormous and big God is. And Solomon's just trying to wrap his mind around just the magnificence of the Lord. He says, it can't contain you. How, how much less this temple, this 2,700 square foot building? which I've built. He's just trying to take in how big his God is. You take the time to do that in the midst of your circumstances and difficulties and problems. Boy, when we put our eyes on Christ, our problems look like so small in comparison to such a big, glorious God. Don't you, don't you want to have that perspective all the time? Not the temporal, but the eternal. It really does change the way we we think about things. It it removes a lot of fear. It removes a lot of anxiety. It removes a lot of sorrow. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you, that your eyes may be open towards this temple day and night, toward the place where you said you would put your name 
that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place, and, and may you hear the supplications of your servant and, the, and your people Israel, whom or when they pray toward this place. Again, all representing his presence, all, all speaking to that. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. If anyone sins against his neighbor, and as he breaks this out, there's a few things he's going to come to the Lord, and, and, and specifically, very specific prayer now, things he's going to ask God for, for the nation of Israel that way. Some of it even prophetic, when you think about when he starts to talk about captivity, and he just finished the temple, right? The Assyrian a captivity doesn't happen for a few hundred years, uh, the Babylonian doesn't happen for almost 500 uh, years, 400 and something years. Almost prophetic. Listen, listen to how he prays. If anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven, act and judge your servant. Bring retribution on the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. He's saying, look, if, if two people come to the house of the Lord, if two people come to church or the temple at that time, and there's a disagreement, both are coming with a perspective. I'm right, I'm right. Both are coming that way. Both are swearing before God that they're telling the truth. Their way is the only way, right? He says, you, God, is you bring favor upon the one walking in righteousness. And the one that is not walking in righteousness, you bring judgment. What he's doing is he's saying, God, this is, is too big for any one man to, to do. It's, it's, it's the reason we understand, even though that there is a, a male king, the nation of Israel is still operating under a theocracy. Please understand, it's, it's, it's different for us. This is not an apple and oranges. This is a, sorry, it's an apple and oranges kind of thing. We're under a democracy or a republic today. We're not under a theocracy, okay? So he's appealing in a theocracy here to, to God and says, Lord, judge these things. Uh, who, as the New Testament says, who is sufficient for these things, right? Do, you know, who is sufficient for these things? It's the second one. Or if your people are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned, that's really the only reason that they should be defeated. There should be no other reason here because there's sin, a sin issue, right? He says, they sinned against you and return and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this temple. Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land which you gave to them and their fathers. The second prayer is as beautiful as the first. He's asking God's wisdom, God's direction here. And he's praying that God would be the author of reconciliation. That whenever there's sin, that God would work to bring about reconciliation for his people. Even if it does mean there has to come a, a point of judgment. They do get defeated by an army or something like that happens. If there's repentance, well and then obviously God will forgive them, then there would be reconciliation. That's always God's plan. He doesn't find joy in, 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 um, in turning around and continuing to correct 
his children that way. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. And in that way, it brings him joy. But the goal is the right relationship again. And, and if you're going through a difficult time or you feel like God's hands upon you, if there's things going on in your life, boy, I'd, Lord, I, I don't expect things to be going this way. Just, just understand in that season, God's goal is reconciliation for you. That, that's, that's his desire for all of you and for me. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain, so uh, the third here, because they have sinned against you, okay, consequence of sin, when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, you put a little pressure there, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servant, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk. And send rain on your land, which you have given your people and as an inheritance. Please notice Solomon didn't ask God to pray away the trial. He didn't ask him to pray away the storm. No, he says, if there needs to be correction, if there needs to be, again, an about face, a change of direction, you know, the Greek word, you know, metanoia, to repent, means it, it's the idea of turning away, right? It's, it's complete. It's not just a kind of, well, I don't really want to kind of do this anymore, and you're still flirting with the sin, so to speak. No, that's, that's not at all what we get in this. This is an absolute about face, a 180 away from that, no longer wanting to give any thought, any uh, resources to the sin that way. When there's a famine in the land, pestilence or bright or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and spreads out his hands towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. And forgive and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of the sons of men, that they may fear you. To walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Moreover, concerning a foreigner. So now Solomon's even praying for the Gentiles who is not your people, Israel, right? So maybe someone that's going to be a Jewish proselyte or a a Jewish convert, or this could even be a God-fearer, okay? Um, The whole point is he hears the Gentiles as well. Who is not your people, Israel, but, but has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray in this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Isn't that beautiful? It's not just let's keep God to ourselves, but our heart and our prayer and desire is that everyone would know Jesus. Everyone would know the living God. It is too good to keep to yourself, and the stakes are too high to just you know, not be intentional about these things. He says, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this temple, which I have built is called by your name, right? That all the nations would know that that temple and the presence of God dwelling there 
It's all for God's glory. It's not because a man's looking for job security or something to do, right? It's got nothing to do with that. No. You know, if you just, I think it's Isaiah chapter 56. If you look at Isaiah 56, look at, look at the prophet Isaiah again. He, in verse 7, he says, Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. God's intention has always been that his house would be a house of prayer. This last Sunday, we had a beautiful time in corporate prayer. We have it every Sunday at 6 p.m. And it's awesome when God's people just come in and we just pour into this place and we just pour out our hearts before the Lord, interceding and praying for this nation, the world, God's children, the lost, the unsaved, the prodigals. And we just lift up our voice to God. It's to be a house of prayer. It's expected. It's expected. You know, Matthew chapter 21, verse 13, I think it's 13, where Jesus, do you remember? He went and he came to the, the house of the Lord, the temple that way. This is Herod's temple or the temple that, you know, Herod had built onto. And, and what does Jesus rebuke all of these men in, in, in the temple? What were they doing? He says, you had made my temple a what? A den or a house of thieves. They had taken the very purpose of God's house, which is to be a place to meet with the Lord, a house of prayer, to come in, to, to be taught the word of God, to, to meet. And they had made it everything other than that. They had commerce and marketing and, you know, it became a social club. It became a, a, a bank. It became a place where animals were bartered and traded. To some extent, you understand that because they had people traveling long distances and they wanted to bring sacrifice to the Lord. What we don't understand is how the religious leaders profited off of that tenfold by making the animal ten times more expensive than if they had just brought it from their own homeland. They were fleecing sheep. And God's got no appetite for that. This house is to be a house of prayer. And I just, I, I just saw a recent study. It's, it breaks my heart. How, that, that more churches are closing today, worldwide, than new churches can be built. That that, that is how quick things are progressing in that downward spiral. Do you, do you remember when we were reading that in, in Kings and and and, and Second Kings, and we and once that spiral began with the kings, when it was a downward trajectory, it started happening so fast, and there was no changing that direction, and it led into captivity for both Assyria, the Assyrian, uh, sorry, the Jews to Assyria, the the eleven to uh, ten actually, and then the two Benjamin and um, Judah to Babylon, and it just as we were reading that, I kept pointing out, look. 20 years, 15 years, 5 years. It goes by like that. And I, I look at this country. I look at the laws of this land. I don't even recognize this country anymore. I, I, I see the, the recent protests. I see the things that are happening. And, and, and I, I, I see people upset because they can't murder. I mean, I mean, that's what we're really talking about. That there should be an inherent right 
for a person to murder someone else or a child for that matter. When did that ever, from a moral compass perspective, become okay? I mean, I understand 1973. I understand the federal aspect of the world. But I mean, in the heart, when did that become okay? When did we become indifferent to life? When, I mean, he told us that the hearts would grow cold in the last days, and it's happening so fast. He's coming. Jesus is coming soon. I, I don't, I think even unbeliever, even people are saying, boy, the world is really crazy now. I, even they're communicating. They, they don't, they don't, they're spiritually blinded, but they're communicating. Man, things are happening at exponential rates. You know, everything that we're dealing with in our economy right now and inflation and different things, you know, some are already arguing we're already in a recession. You know, uh, the economists are coming out and saying, are we, are we correctly yielding the indexes the way we used to in the 80s and 90s and when Greenspan was uh, the chair of the Federal Reserve? Are we still paying attention to things like, maybe some of you know the term, the breadbasket? It used to be used to determine how people were able to buy, sell, and, and what were they shopping when they went to the grocery store. Maybe some of you don't know what I'm talking about. It was a really simple, you know, I was an economics major, econometrics. And I remember, you know, economics 101 theory was the idea that when you have more disposable income, why, right? You, you have more disposable income you might go out and purchase things that are more high-ticket items, like maybe you have uh, meat, or maybe you have a really nice piece of meat, like a filet or something like that. Um, and then when times are a little bit difficult, you might go to um, maybe just, you know, broth, you know, just something like that, that. That's what you can afford. You know, you take and cook up the bone and you, you let it simmer that way, which is awesome, by the way, bone broth. But my point is, is because I a lot of protein in it, but my point is, is that you, you understand where I'm going with this, that, that there's a difference in your shopping cart. And I'd some, I used to, some of you are going to go, Pastor, watching what I'm buying. No, I'm not. But I used to sometimes, I, I like to people watch. I'd go and I'd sit in a bench. And my wife, we would we'd go to the store shop. And uh, and she always, you know, she'd like to look around. Sometimes as exercise, especially in the winter in Rochester, New York. Going to a mall or somewhere out where it was actually covered and you could walk. And you weren't in land, ice, and snow. Okay? And you got a little bit of a breather there. After being trapped in the house for four months straight, you know, with 30 or 40 inches of snow. You kind of wanted to get out a little bit. So you'd go and, and I'd people watch. You'd go look around at all these things and I'd just watch people and I'd always watch what they come out with and the different things. And Alan Greenspan, breadbasket. And you look today, it's getting really tough. It's being stretched. It's like what it says in Revelation. We're not to that point yet where they start talking about the wine and the barley and the, you know, the commodities, the food, the things becoming more and more scarce. You know, they're saying today it has to still do with two years ago, and it's from shortages in plants and manufacturing plants being lit on fire and different things like that have happened, and, and we're seeing these things. He was already praying. Solomon was already praying, Lord, please hear and forgive the sin of your people, Israel. 
and bring them back to the land which you gave to them and their fathers. Let there be reconciliation. And when the heavens are shut up and we read there's no rain because they have sinned against you, and they pray towards this place and confess your name towards from their sin because you afflict them and there is and they're in heaven. Here in heaven, excuse me, and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good ways which you should walk and send rain on the land you have given to your people as an inheritance. When there is famine in the land, pestilence, blight, mildew, locusts, grasshoppers, when their enemies besiege you in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prey, supplication made by anyone or by your people Israel, when each one knows his own burden, his own grief, and spreads out his hands to this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know you know alone the hearts of the sons and men, that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Moreover, concerning foreigners, we read this already, who is not of your people, Israel, but have come from a far country, the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, and they come and pray to this temple that ye then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which is a foreigner calls to you and all the peoples of the earth that you may know your, they may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. When your people go out to battle against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to you, or or when they pray towards the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayers and their supplications and maintain their cause, right? When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin we all need a Savior. And you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy and take them captive to a land far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned, we have done wrong, and have committed wickedness, And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, and when they have been carried captive and pray toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen toward the temple, which I have built for your name. Can you imagine the post-exilic people reading this? I mean, they're reading this in, you know, 500, because it would have been 70 years after the captivity, 586. I mean, they're reading this 490 And they're thinking this was written. I mean, Ezra certainly wrote it, but recorded what happened in Kings 500 years earlier. 400 plus. This is prophetic. You mean God said this? You know, Solomon's praying this way, putting it certainly on Solomon's heart. God did. He's praying that way. Hey, when this happens and they're the generation, two generations actually later, in that land looking at this, you've got their attention. He's got their attention now. They're, they're hearing this. What? You know, which I have built in your name. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer, and their supplications to maintain their, their cause and forgive your people which have sinned against you. Now, my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and let yours be attentive to the prayer made to this place. I think of Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. You remember what Daniel would do? He'd open the windows. That's right. And he'd pray towards what? Towards Jerusalem. What wasn't he praying towards at that time? 
a temple. Why? Because the temple was destroyed. Did you ever think about that as we read this? And he prophetically says this, and, and Daniel would still turn and pray towards Jerusalem that way, even though the temple was not erected again yet. As he was in captivity, remember Daniel talks about, well, he had paid attention to Jeremiah in his 70 years. I can't, I can't imagine what those people were thinking at that moment, the post-exilic people, except great joy. A conclusive, God is not done with us. Now therefore, arise, O Lord God, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. And let your saints rejoice in goodness. Hmm. I think it's what we're supposed to be doing. Rejoicing in goodness. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed. He's talking about himself, Solomon, in contrast to God's goodness right here. All that God has bestowed upon him. Remember the mercies of your servant, David. We'll we'll stop here uh, this evening. As I look back and I study these things, remembering 1 Corinthians 10, these things are examples for you and I today. I don't actually think I need to give application. I think all of us understand what Solomon was communicating to a post-exilic period people, which is don't give up hope. God is a promise keeper. God is faithful to his promises. And to continue to be looking towards God, not towards your circumstance. And to be waiting and ready. Because salvation, as he said, be clothed with salvation and let your saints rejoice in goodness. And that's what we all ought to be doing. As we read in Luke chapter 19, he describes how we, we're going to talk about that Sunday, how we're to occupy. It means that we're to be busy about our Father's business. But it doesn't mean we're to be walking around, you know, saw, you know, long faces and, oh, you know, this is, oh, this, this being a Christian thing is tough. Well, yeah. Well, we have the greatest gift from our Heavenly Father that anybody could ever desire, and that's the security and relationship with Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, and then so much more, our, our Creator, our love. And he's also promised us an inheritance that's uncorruptible, undeniable, and the, can't be defiled in any capacity. And, and he's, he's given us his righteousness that's been imputed to you and I. And we, we have been given so much that I read these passages and I said, Lord, let your saints rejoice in goodness. Let there just be a holy lifting of hands and a, a spirit that's contrite that lifts and just begins to worship the one true God in joy. Because God's not done with you yet. And most importantly, friends, if you get one thing out of this tonight, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. 